Good afternoon, good afternoon, happy Tuesday. I'm Dr. James Smith and welcome to The Dr. James Show. We have a powerful show for you today. Get ready, sensational guests. I bring out the co-host with the most is Shannon Peck. Shannon, good afternoon, what's up? Hi, good afternoon. Oh my gosh, is it Tuesday? Are we gonna be in November? I don't know what's <laughs> going on. It's just, it's flying by. Um, so thank you again for uh, those of you who are brand new joining us for the first time, welcome. We're, we're excited, we're thankful, we're grateful. Those of you who faithfully join us, we appreciate you as well. As usual, don't forget to use that chat button, uh, ask your questions. Put in some comments. We're going to do our best over the next hour to um, get you to interact with us, ask you with these questions, and and just um, have a good time. Yeah, good stuff. Okay. You look like you're ready to rock and roll. Listen, always. Don't threaten me with a good time, Dr. James. <laughs> the show's not long enough. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me introduce our, our guest for today. Uh, if you look in a dictionary or Google the word powerhouse, you'll probably see a picture of Uva Coles, president of Inclusa. She is a phenomenal thought leader. Her journey has been spectacular. And when she walks in the room, it tilts. Ladies and gentlemen, meet Uva Coles. Hey. Hey, Jim, how are you? I'm, I'm, I'm doing good. I'm doing good. However, I do have somewhat of a heavy heart. And before I go there, let me just check in with you. How are you? I am right there with you. I was so very much looking forward to spending our time together and still am. I, I know we are going to tilt the room together, right? <laughs> uh, that's what we do. But at the same time, I, I have to be honest. Um, you know that I'm uh, based out of Delaware, right across, uh, right across the border from Pennsylvania, mm -hmm. and have spent most of my career in Philadelphia. And so today, um, I, I have a heavy heart uh, as I'm thinking um, about Walter Wallace, right? Um, and yeah, I'm, glad, I'm glad you're bringing that up because that's the elephant in the room, and I would not want to move forward with where we're going until we talked about that. Mm -hmm. I'm glad you are making space for that conversation. I think mm -hmm. it ties in with, with, I think, many of the things that we'll touch on today. Um, and so as a mother to two sons, they're 13 and 17. We'll talk about that later. I, well, I know. I know. Right? That many. Um, two young Black men, right? And so um, I, every time there's the loss of a life in the way that Mr. Wallace uh, lost his life. It hits home in a very personal way. It certainly touches on the work I do, but it hits home. And so I know that we are already a country divided and this will be, um, this will add to that division. Part of what I hope we can do today is um, try to remember how to connect the dots at a moment mm this because that is critical, right? How do we bridge across this um, the kind of sea of difference that keeps trying to pull us apart? Yeah. I think our work is to make sure that one, we reconcile, address, hold 
people accountable for the things they need to be held accountable to and find our way back to each other. So heavy as my heart is, I keep trying to swim back to shore. Mm, mm. For me, the optics continue to be so egregious. It's almost as if it's par for the course. And that's part of what bothers me as well. I've seen this before. I've seen this movie. It's beyond rerun. Yeah. It's, we have work to do. We, do. we have work to do. And speaking of work, mm-hmm. you've been busy all your life. A little bit. <laughs> A little bit. We know each other we, about our background and some of the things we've done, but maybe some of the folks who are tuning in don't know. Sure. My question to you is, Uva Coles, mm-hmm. how did you get here based on where you've been, the organizations you worked for, the universities you worked for? And now you're here as an entrepreneur, business owner on the Dr. James show. Can you give us a snapshot of how'd you, how'd you get here? Sure. I'm still trying to figure that out. But I'm, <laughs> glad here. I'm glad I'm here. I think we belong wherever our feet are, right? Mm. So I, I, I am confident that I was meant to be here, but the road has been really curvy and interesting and filled with learnings and, you know, falls here and there. I have bruises, I have a few scratches, but my head is still lifted. Um, Born and raised in the Republic of Panama uh, until I was um, 17, 18 years old, at which point, yeah, yeah. So home, right? Panama was and and will always be my first home. At some point, um, we made the decision as a family to come to the United States. I had a full academic scholarship to a tiny little school in South Carolina, now Claflin University, back then Claflin College. Mm -hmm. Um, And so my intention was just to come and study and learn and not fall or fail because that was not a privilege afforded to a first-generation college student who had the opportunity. Uh, so I came here really to support myself and my family and, and hopefully um, live out what my the dreams that my mom had for me. I'll share this with you. Before making that long trek, at some point, my mom, um, when, when she, she had me at 17 years old, so she was a young mother. Ooh, okay. Uh, brilliant woman, brilliant woman, uh, who just didn't have the benefit of a formal education, fell in love with my dad charismatic man, you know, <laughs> you know, um, uh, you, so, <laughs> you, know, you know, it can be that. Uh, and so between the two of them, though, they, they poured love onto us. But my mom at some point, even at 17, 18 years old, when she had me, she just sat up differently, right? She had her Ooh. wake up call and she decided this, we're turning, we're pivoting, right? And we're doing this together. So we grew up together. And I remember her first, um, her second apartment where I was standing in front of what I I thought was like a skyscraper at the time. Years later, I went back, that thing had three tiers, like three floors, but in the moment it was big, right? Biggest building I saw, five or six years old. And we got our first apartment, Jim. And that was for us, you know, moving on up. That's what that felt like, right? (laughs) Years later, I realized we were living in an apartment. It was a one bedroom, right? beds. Uh, we made it work. Um, that was our palace. That was our home. And I remember my mom taking contact paper, we called it back then, just turned that place into a home. She, she, magical, right? Just magical. It never felt as if we were missing anything. 
And so I just remember always um, that she was a woman who made the extraordinary out of the very ordinary, right? Mm. It was just magical. And I wanted to be that kind of magic. And so I kind of carried that with me. Um, had a wonderful opportunity to begin after college, uh, graduated at the top of my class, um, had my first job, which was not the job I intended. I was a department assistant, you know, graduated top of my class, was trying to figure out why am I having such a difficult time entering this space called the workforce, right? Just couldn't. Um, eventually, someone took a chance on me, brought me in as a department assistant, sat me down eye to eye and said, I see something here, right? I see mm. a lot more than the position we brought you in with. So we're going to work through this and work with you. And that became my first official mentor. I had many more before then, uh, but someone who took me under his wing and started wow. to put my career on fire, quite frankly. Mm taught me what he knew and even what he didn't, just positioned me ahead of him so that I could learn. Uh, and so that's how I had started to navigate. But in that very first role, I realized that something about my identity um, created some barriers, right? I saw other people come in and navigate easily, people with the, with the same degrees, people who maybe hadn't done as well as I did in school, who just were on a different course, a different path. And so I started- What was the initial impact on you when that was happening? Um, I think I, I didn't understand. I was confused. I was really confused. And, you know, you, you do what people do, what women especially do when you layer um, other facets of your identity. You layer race with that. I was an immigrant. I had a thicker accent back then. There was a lot going on for me. And so those insecurities started to become the lens through which I interpreted what was happening. It must be me, right? It must be me. The reason I'm not doing as well as other people is there's something about me. But my mentor helped me course correct. And he was the person who brought in the first diversity program. We didn't call it that back then. But in that company, um, he was the first person who brought that in. And so I got to observe this kind of rub between identity and workforce that was happening in a very internal way to me. And it became part of my work, right? Wow. An opportunity to learn. What an opportunity to learn. Everything I was applying to our interns at the time, I had to take a step back and learn and unlearn. Uh, and that's where I started to think about the interplay of identity and workforce and, and that those I think were the seeds of diversity, equity and inclusion. And years later, position after position, opportunity after opportunity, I think I started to channel my mother and sit up a little bit. You think? You right? think? <laughs> and just as she did a really good job of turning that first apartment into our home, I turned in every space I occupied into my space. Um, it's been sometimes challenging, but that's all right. That's all right. Well, that's is what that's you've been doing. Idea. We met when you were at Philadelphia Inroads. Yes. Then we continued to dance at Pierce College. Mm -hmm. Then you, I believe you ended up at my alma mater, Widener University. Good. And now you big time business owner doing your DE&I work, continuing to mm -hmm. sit up and do what you were taught to do. Mm -hmm. It's It's been a thread, right? Um, I mentioned how careers loop and turn, and I know your own career has kind of 
looped and turned as well. Uh, I think those things are intentional, though in the moment you don't recognize it. But usually there's like a, a grounding force, right? A thing, a, a bit of a, a thread that carries, right? And so for me, it's been no matter what roles I've held, I've been um, at the senior, you know, executive tables of nonprofit organizations. You've mentioned the higher education roles uh, or organizations that I work for. So I've been able to climb and end up at that executive seat and really have an idea of what happens throughout these organizations. But the common thread has always been my obsession with observing this interplay of identity in the workforce. Wow. That has been the common thread. And earlier this year, after doing this work for so long for so many, I thought I want to do this on my own because I want to do it in, in a way that is consistent with what I know to be true. Um, and in a way that allows me to be in the driver's seat, not the path, not the back seat. And those are good seats. Sometimes you have to sit there so you can learn, right? My son's 17, he's learning to drive. His best lessons are sometimes when he's next to us, behind us, picking up, picking up, picking it all up. Uh, so I have I appreciate the opportunities I've had not to drive, but to observe. Uh, because they gave me all the information I needed to now jump into that driver's seat and move forward, move forward. What, to what's best. been the yeah. biggest shift for you, either mentally, emotionally? What's been the biggest shift from passenger seat to now mm -hmm. driving seat, responsible for taking that wheel mm -hmm. and moving the car down the road? What's sure. the biggest shift? Um, I think it's been the belief that... I belong in that seat. Mm, mm, yes. Yeah. I, and so what I would say is while years ago, I may have aspired for the highest possible seats, right? I'm an ambitious mm -hmm. person. No qualms about that. Um, but I don't know that I knew what it might feel like to then sit in that seat of responsibility and be accountable for every major decision, right? That's a, that's a huge shift. You, you think it's a long time. I want to be there, right? But then when you get there, you realize, oh my God, this is, this is, this is on me, right? This is on me. It's on the team I bring in. It's on the impact I have. Um, this is, this is, this is mine, right? Um, so adjusting to that was a bit of a shift, but I have to tell you for as many nights as I've had those heart palpitations, I've had mornings where I am just energized and ready to go and interactions with clients and partners that remind me that that's the right seat for me. So mm. I'm learning. Well, spe speaking of energizer and sitting in the right seat, Shannon's in the right seat right now to bring us what's happening in the chat room in or a question that she's generated based on hearing what we've been discussing thus far. Um, chat room quiet for now, but I, I don't believe it's going to stay that way because I think folks are holding on and listening to your story, Uva. And um, I love that you had an opportunity to have a different perspective and view. I always like to call it the pew view and the pulpit view mm -hmm. uh, because it's very different sitting in a congregation or sitting in a workplace saying you should have could have you should do this you should do that but then you get the pulpit view and you get to be that leader and you realize it's harder to move that train or harder to implement change and there's so much to navigate through that it's not as simple and so it's exciting that you're getting an opportunity and you're also learning and still, it sounds to me, wanting to continue to learn. Mm -hmm. um, 
and that you haven't have it, don't have it all figured out at this point. But one of the questions I have is, um, because of this current climate, I think the world now is aware of diversity and inclusion, or at least they think they do. Um, do you find that people are more open to have the conversations or do you think that now people are using this current climate as an excuse and saying now more than ever, we're using that race or that gender card? Mm -hmm. So how do you see it? Sure, sure, good question and I love this. Yeah. I love the idea of pew versus the pulpit, Shannon. Yeah. I'm putting that, just so you know, I'm putting that in my backpack. We're served in ministry, you know, it's completely different going oh. to Sunday, just sitting down receiving. <laughs> Absolutely, it is. Um, so I would say that it's it's both. The answer to your question is it's both. For as difficult as I mean, 2020 is just a year that keeps on giving us right um, a number of of surprises. Some of them not so good. And so I see this as a a year of a triple pandemic. There's a racial pandemic, the economic pandemic, um, and also obviously the health pandemic. The 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 upside to this moment is that it has forced our collective attention. And so at a time prior to this, I think those of us who are steeped in this work, Dr. Smith is, is clearly one of these people who's been doing this work for quite some time. We have been living it, we know it. And, and depending on your identity or your allyship, you've known about these disparate impacts, right? But there've been people who've been kind of swimming on the surface, frankly, completely unaware of what has been beneath them, right? And so this pandemic, I think, has forced us to be quiet, to be still in a way that we are not used to. Mm. And it's forced us to open our eyes and deal with the realities in front of us now. Because of that, I think some people have kind of recoiled and decided they still don't want to see it. So at this point, that is a decision, right? The information is in front of you in the most explicit way. And so you make a decision. That's one side. But I'm excited about the fact that many other people are saying, I, I just didn't know, right? Whatever that might feel like for me as a person that had to live it, I appreciate that a lot of people in this moment are saying, I just didn't know. And I want to do something with that, right? Which enables us as practitioners to come into organizations, in my case, and finally have not superficial conversations, because that's where a lot of organizations were, especially prior to 2020, but more explicit conversations. This stuff is on fire, it's in front of us. And so we are provided an opportunity to deal with the reality of um, diversity, of equity, of inclusion in a more direct way. We needed to get there. I, I don't like how we got here, but I like that we, that we're here. And so that has created open, that has opened doors of opportunity in a very different way. So it's, it's twofold. It's twofold. Love it. Thank you, Shannon. Great question. Great question. I'm gonna go a little bit deeper, Uva. How does your, your background, mm -hmm. Afro-Latino, Mm -hmm. How does your Afro-Latina background inform your work? Um, it is, it informs every step. Um, I talked a little bit earlier about coming into this country at 17, 18 years old. Um, I didn't question who I was back home, right? A Black Panamanian young woman, right? That's mm -hmm. it. Um, came to the United States and went to an HBCU, Claflin University, woohoo! Uh, and 
there we go. And quickly recognize that my black context, right, needed to be contextualized in a new reality. So although we had a racial connection at an HBCU and I could have that connection across gender as well, I yes. had this this ethnicity and this cultural background that was different from my peers, right? And so suddenly questions like, when people found out I was from Panama, there were questions like, yeah, but what, what are you? And that there was a question mark around my race and I kept looking around thinking, how is that even possible, right? How is that even a question? But it helped me understand that there were layers to this thing called identity and layers to this idea of this, this construct right of, of race that is really man-made and i wanted to understand that a little bit more and interestingly when i came to the united states i started to study my afro latinidad in more um, detail i've been living it never had to question it but for the first time i was asked questions about history and about my ancestry and i found myself wanting to dig into that and learn about it um, it's funny that I, I, I believe that I had to leave my country in order to start exploring more deeply my identity. Uh, so it, it still was a gift. With all of that said, as an Afro-Latina, um, I sit between cultures, right? I sit between American culture and Panamanian culture, Latin American country uh, culture. I sit between the Black community in many cases and the Latino community in many cases, right? And I can see both spaces with clarity and a sense of love and a sense of appreciation for the struggle and a sense of connection. And so I'm always trying to figure out how we might be able to remove the barriers and help people see each other more clearly. So it informs the work I do. In it informing your work, has there ever been any pain? Any pain in that position of, you know, the pivot. Both, both cultures yeah. informing it, your decisions, your behaviors, your thoughts, your words, any painful memories? A little bit, Jim, a little bit, a little bit, um, and sometimes a lot. Um, while at home uh, in Panama, I didn't question that identity. The reality was um, we know that people of color, we know that Black people, um, no matter what the context, um, sometimes we just have to fight harder. Mm. Sometimes our identity becomes a barrier for others. Um, and so back home, there still was this tiered understanding and this perception that what was Eurocentric was better, that what looked um, lighter, right? Lighter skin, longer hair, um, that looked features, right? That looked a certain way were better. And so even in that context, as a young black woman, I had to fight for um, not recognition so much, but I think um, fight for an understanding of who I was and that I mattered as much as anyone else. The beauty of that was I had a dad who was relentless in his commitment to who we are, right? And to yeah. just showing up as you are and not trying to be anything else. And at a time where people were, you know, relaxing their hair and doing all kinds of interesting things, my dad was trying to put me in the biggest Afro he could possibly find. You know, he had me becoming the most militant child he could think of. Uh, and my mother, on the other hand, modeled that, but also wanted me to 
be thoughtful about my steps and be balanced, not to shift who I was, but to understand the consequences of how I might be perceived and to figure out how to navigate no matter what, right? So I had the benefit of that. The pain was recognizing that I had this extra work to do as a black woman in my own country. And then shifting here to the United States, Finding my community, right? The Latin, I, I was accepted by the black community at my HBCU, no questions after they got over my little accent and realized she's one of us, right? Come home, you're home. That became home instantly. But then when I started to occupy spaces with my own Latin um, community, because of how I looked from time to time, there was that, that perception that I was a guest in our community, right? So, mm. um, and there's usually that initial rub, the, the who are you, which we all do, right? So who's, who's coming in through the door? That's fine. Um, but from time to time, I felt as if I had to prove my Latinidad. And that for me has never been acceptable. Not something that I subscribe to. I am who I am. I stand in this blend of ethnicities and cultures and firm in my race and comfortable in that and knowing the richness that comes from all of that. So there are no explanations, right? I'm here. I want to be home. I want to commune. Um, but no explanations, no explanations. So that has been painful, but I've overcome it. You mentioned that you're very thoughtful. We've known each other 20, 30 years, and every time I've seen you, wherever we are, workshop, networking event, at a university, you always appear to be in control. You could have a bad day, we wouldn't know it. The smile, the stature, the look, the focus, the purposefulness, like you, you always already. How does that happen? <laughs> How does that happen? <laughs> when I see you, I'm like, look at her, look at the president, look at the president. <laughs> mm, mm, I'll take it. Um, I, I don't think it's unique to me, Jim, I could say the same thing about you, right? That in those same interactions and spaces, you're ready to go, you're ready to, to impact individuals and rooms. Um, and I, what I like about the way you do it is that it's authentic, right? Mm -hmm. it's, it's not a shield, it's, it's you just being ready. And so um, what I would say that we probably have in common is we have been preparing for every moment, every step of the way, right? We can't afford not to. So um, it is imperfect that much I'm sure of. It took me a minute to get there, right? But in, as I get a little bit older, I recognize perfection is not the goal, but readiness is. Readiness absolutely is. And part of that is because identity plays a role in how you're perceived. So many of the spaces that you mentioned, I'm, I'm so used to sometimes walking in and being the only woman, right? Sometimes the only woman of color, certainly the only black woman. Um, you put all of that together and then there's the culture and all of the other pieces that are in the back of my mind. And I'm standing for some things that other people may not even wanna talk about. So I can't afford to walk in half stepping, right? Whether I'm wearing my, my nice little heels, those stilettos or my sneakers, <laughs> what the shoes might be. I know that when I step in, that when I speak, um, people are listening um, and they are either expecting me to fly or fall, right? There's no in between. And my intention, again, 
It's not about perfection. My intention is to soar, right? My intention is to soar. So what that means is I need to prep for everything I do. That's all. It's just readiness. It's just readiness. I love that you said I'm ready to soar, not I'm ready to fly. Mm -mm. Mm -mm. I believe I can fly. I want people to believe they can soar. Yeah. Soar. My co-host loves the soar as well. Shannon, what's going on? Well, before I get to the couple questions in the chat room, I just want to know if um, your parents will adopt me because I'm still moldable. <laughs> I can still be made into something great. I'm still I'm a work in progress. <laughs> you're there already, Shannon. I think you're there already. Uh, we do have a couple really good questions. Um, a very insightful and powerful statement uh, that I relate to, the privilege of failure is not afforded to first-generation immigrants. Mm -hmm. This is synonymous with um, this person's experience as well. One, how do we shake it off of ourselves? And two, how do we educate our peers to take that into account and not count it as, a de as detrimental? Mm -hmm. So one, how do we shake it off? And then how do we you know, get folks to not take it on as so detrimental? Yeah, sure. I think I think the answer is is the same answer, right? So often what makes us great is it's often a double-edged sword, right? It's the thing that sometimes cuts us off at the knees. And so being first generation, we know there's like a weight of responsibility. You don't want to disappoint. Mm. You have a whole family behind you that you want to make proud and you want to support economically and in so many other ways. So there's this weight you carry and, and that's that's heavy. Um, but at the same time, I think that that gives you focus and it gives you perspective and it gives you purpose. And so if you if you look at it that way, if you hold on to it that way, that's nothing but clearing a path for you. Right. That's that's keeping your eye on the prize, no matter how difficult things may get. The difficulty becomes if you see that difference as a first generation as deficit. When you start to weigh that you, you wear that weight and, and kind of let it not anchor you in purpose, but kind of bring you down. That's a whole different kind of weight. And I would say what's critical is that you, rem you remember what your purpose is, right? If you keep that in mind and just try to be focused and remember your difference, it's just that difference, not deficit. There's an opportunity to move through this world with your head hilt, you know, your head kind of we, we talked about that tilt. I'm going to hold on to that word for the rest of the day, Jen, because your, your head always ought to be, I think, tilted in two ways. One of them is either down for me in prayer, right? Because you need to be poured into in some way. And when you've had, when you have that pouring in, then it's time to tilt that head up, right? And not let anything, anything cause that tilt to go anywhere else. So it's either down in prayer or up in gratitude. Hashtag stealing that. Uva, <laughs> <laughs> we also have um, a gentleman who, um, or uh, actually I believe it's a young lady. Uh, my company is launching a women's group within our company and the company is very supportive of this. We just had our first successful launch gaining memberships and buy-in. In your opinion, how can we keep members engaged, excited, and networking in this virtual world? Yeah, yeah. Well, love that question and love that you're doing the work to promote um, leadership, right? And, and gender-based leadership, although the, the leadership competencies are the same across the board. How we do it as women, 
you know, you know, you know, we do a thing or two, I'll take it. Uh, so there's something really special about that and also needed. I mean, we know that the data show that women for as much as we might be as qualified as everyone else, we get to certain piece parts of our career and then we reach these bottlenecks to leadership, right? It's why the numbers are so, so dismal at the C-suite. So great that this is happening. What is critical is that you align the group's work with the strategy of the company. So what, what I see happening a lot with resource groups or affinity groups is they then become a social space, which is important. You need comfort, you need community, um, but you also always wanna remember if it's the workforce, then you need to connect the dots back to the organizational purpose. So what is it that you as a group really wanna accomplish? Is it about promoting each other? In which case, let's think about how mentorship may play a role in moving us forward, right? That's energizing in and of itself. So figure out who your ambassadors are, who your sponsors are, have the conversations about how your group may find greater alignment with the organization's goals certainly around diversity and gender diversity, but beyond that with its operational and strategic goals and how your group might be helpful in getting there. What we forget to do sometimes is to connect those dots. And when we forget those dots, then we can become invisible. You wanna be upfront, you wanna be present, and you wanna be aligned with the mission, the purpose, the goals of the organization. And to, if I can just add one thing in yeah. terms of the virtual piece, um, one of the things that's happening right now is there's this um, virtual bias, right? So we can easily disappear because we don't even have the benefit of kind of bumping into each other on the elevator, spending yeah. some time together in the lunchroom, right? Going in meetings and seeing each other eye to eye and then having that off, offhand conversation right after that meeting, those moments are lost. And so you have to become more intentional. The beauty of the virtual environment is that it narrows the divide as well. It creates proximity so that manager or leader who lives across the country who you would have never bumped into on the elevator, right? Except maybe that once once a year, that annual visit. Now you have an opportunity to maybe connect more virtually. You can maybe send that email and just say, I'd love, I'd appreciate 15 minutes of your time. Um, I'll connect us via Zoom if that's appropriate and would love just and would just love an opportunity to have a conversation. You can figure out the right way to do that, but ultimately what that means is leverage the virtual environment you're in. No matter what the obstacle I said when I said earlier, there are usually two sides to everything. For as difficult as this virtual environment can be, you can overcome it by thinking about how you can use it to narrow some of the existing divides. I love I don't know about you, Dr. James, I'm ready to jump in front of a bus or whatever Uba tells me to do because I am, I am, I am excited. <laughs> She's so good. And I believe I can do it as well. Thanks, Shannon. Uh, Uva, let's talk about the significance, importance of intersectionality. Mm. Mm. What's that about? What's that? I, I believe you, you, you. You've done research on it, you talk about it. What's sure help us understand what's going sure. on there? Um, it's it's the I word, it's an important word. So one of the things um that that's happened recently, especially is in the diversity, equity, and inclusion space. Um, is that we often, I mean, data drives everything, right? So we've been looking at data, cutting and slicing the data. 
um, when we forget intersectionality, then the data is inaccurate, right? The data doesn't tell the whole story. And you know, as you were working no, on your no. degree, the importance, right, of really digging into data will tell you what you want it to tell you, right? When you really, when you really think about it, as you interpret it, right? Remind, before we finish, remind me mm -hmm. to replay that story that we had when I was considering changing uh, yes. my dissertation. I remember, that. I remember that. Um, so we look, I, I, I'll give you a concrete example. I was uh, participating in a conference recently and a phenomenal uh, woman, a leader, um, a national leader was providing her talking points. She was great. And she talked about women's progress and it was incredible. Mm. I mean, she talked about how well we were doing and the things that we were doing, how we were just killing it, right? And as a black woman, I sat back thinking, but where am I in that data, right? Ooh. Those are great data points um, until you unpack them, until you look at them through a lens of age, until you unpack them and look at them through a, a lens of uh, race, right? And so for every data point that she came up with collectively, yes, there's forward movement, but I knew enough to know that those numbers look very different for black women, for Latinas, those numbers look very different for Asian women, right? And so intersectionality is this idea of um, layering, of scaffolding different parts of our identity. So if you're gonna talk about what's happening in the workforce, for instance, for women, what's important is that you then unpack that data and not only talk about women in the aggregate, but think about women of color, right? Women of certain ages, women with disabilities, trans women, if you have that information available to you. It's important that you unpack so that you can understand. And, and let me be clear, it's important that as a collective, we stand up together. That should never be lost on us. But it's also important that we unpack that data so we can figure out what's happening at the intersections, right? That may create some barriers for some of us, but some opportunities for others. Because until all of those barriers are completely flattened, then the collective is really not moving forward collectively, right? Until all of us are kind of free to run that race with equity, we are not running that race well. So that's why intersectionality for me, and I talked about gender, but think about all of the other pieces, right? Think about sexual orientation and religion and um, so many of the disabilities, cognitive and, and physical, so many of those other pieces. And so I don't want us ever to get so comfortable that we look at data holistically and forget that there's a story hiding at the edges of those data points. I want us to read those stories and do something with them. But your story, before we forget, hmm, <laughs> I remember that story. I, I want to hear it again. I need to hear it again. Well. You know, I'm in the midst of the dissertation, mm -hmm. and many of my classmates are more quantitative researchers, mm -hmm. looking at the data now and yeah. analyzing the data, Bitcoin, cy cybersecurity, artificial intelligence, that very analytical stuff. And each time I would stand and present, I would talk about authenticity, the people side people side and my classmates start pushing back authenticity what's that that's so soft that's not going to move an organization mm. i let that noise get into my head 
and I call Uber. <laughs> I'm on the dissertation ambulance. <laughs> I'm considering changing my focus. Mm -hmm. You got on your bullhorn. Mm -hmm. Don't you dare. Mm -hmm. When there, I don't want you to fall in line with everybody else. Create your own line. Do your authenticity. Hold on. Is this Jim, is this Jim on the phone? Mm -hmm. He's talking about listening to what other people say? Mm -hmm. Hello? I remember it like it was yesterday. Even you, right? But I, I think what that, one, just so happy that you stayed the course. But two, it just underscores how easy it is to fall into line, right? Yeah. And, and if we really think about who breaks through, who becomes brilliant who sets the tone the pace creates new spaces that we didn't think were possible it's the people who don't fall in line right there's a time to learn and a time to follow norms but at some point when your spirit i know i'm preaching to the choir now oh, no 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 well but but i think at some point you pay attention to your spirit right and when your spirit says this isn't it this isn't it you listen you listen and nine times out of ten i would say probably ten times out of ten you're going to be led exactly where you're supposed to go so i am glad you um you didn't listen jim you didn't listen this this was a time for you to to lead and you did just that and that's why we're so so proud of you and happy to happy to follow you <laughs> thank you you poured in you poured it and i love your statement or question where am i in the data where am I in the data? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Speaking of data, an organization, some take the data and move to the training aspect. Mm. What are you seeing today or what do you espouse regarding diversity, equity, and inclusion training? Is there a prescribed way to do it, what not to do? Because we've been at this for some time. Sure. I have my thoughts, mm -hmm. but I'm curious. What are yours these days? Sure. So when I have a bias against the word training, though I use it, um, but after spending well over a decade in higher education, I just believe in the power of education, yes. right? And yes. so I think what 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 happens with training in the workforce, we use that word because it's, it's just accessible for the workplace, right? But I know what you do because I've sat in the class, I've sat in your classroom and I know exactly what you do and that is about education, right? Yeah. Um, but but we'll, 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 we'll use the word training for now. Um, I think leaders in this moment, many of them are uncertain. They recognize they need to do something. And so the, the knee-jerk reaction is let's train. Let's, let's do diversity, right? That's the, that's the best way to, to they frame it. Let's do diversity. Let's create a, a training that our staff can go through, and then we will have checked off that box. And what we know about that is, first and foremost, this work, the work of inclusion, lives at the leadership level, right? And so that educational process, it's not a one and done. If you think you've crossed the finish line, you really have some work to do. This is endless. This is iterative. It's continued learning. And so um, when, if you are in an organization that believes training will address its diversity issues, I have to, I have to be honest and sharing with you that is that is not the case, right? Mm -hmm. Training is a tool 
in a greater uh, process of learning, of being educated in this space. Training um, cannot become the solution. It can become a part of a larger strategy. The, the strategy has to be systemic. The strategy is about looking at your systems and debiasing them. And more importantly, the strategy lives at the mindset level, right? Of leadership. So how does leadership really think about this work? Can they, can they breathe it in? or are they just trying to push it around, right? And you can tell the difference when a leader is kind of standing in this work and saying, I believe in this, right? I believe everybody should feel a sense of belonging in this organization. And so that becomes part of the work we do, seeding inclusion in leadership mindset so that then can, that can be articulated throughout the entire organization. And training simply becomes a tool of implementation. Just a little bit, just a little bit. Shannon, any additional questions out there in the chat room? Because the Uva is 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 tearing it up. We do, we do. And um before I ask this question, I just kind of just something I observe because I really believe in this thing we call life. There are no coincidences. And I really believe that our purpose is driven by our experiences, much mm -hmm. like yours. Dr. James, where here you are questioning the very thing with authenticity, which is what you build your whole being on and your work, your life's work on, and then questioning it. And then having someone like Uva to be able to bring you back into a lot, snap back into alignment. And then Uva, what I've observed with you, what you said early on is if you didn't have that experience with having those barriers in front of you, in spite of your education to move forward, you may have never walked in this line of work. So I just feel like it's not coincidence. It always has a purpose, but if you don't have, it's like, it's like, if you don't have a testimony, right? So it's like, almost like as if I'm in prison ministry, but I've never been locked up. You have to, you have to experience it in here because then it, it keeps you grounded, I believe, when the going gets tough, right? Mm -hmm. So it anchors you back down, but enough of me preaching. But um, folks that want to know, did you find that your HBCU experience was impactful to mm -hmm. your professional success? Absolutely. Um, there is something that happens in um, marginalized communities, right? Uh, and, and what that looks like, uh, and I know I'm, I may be preaching to the choir with both of you as well, is that we are sent repeated constant messages that we are somehow different, maybe not enough, right? It depends on the, the degree of that looks a little bit different for many of us. HBCUs are space specifically designed to pour into individuals who for I think a number of years, you know, usually by the time you're 18 years old, you've had consistent messages that something may be lacking, something may be missing, something may not be exactly what it needs to be. And so an HBCU for me, and I think for many of my peers were space where we walked into and we were one, the majority, doesn't happen that often when you are a person of color, especially a black person. Um, secondly, not only were you in the majority, but that was celebrated, right? It was celebrated in the way we were instructed. Everything was centered around who we were, right? Um, the history of our country was reviewed through a different lens so that we could emerge 
the storytellers as well, right? When the lion tells a story, right? It sounds very different than when the hunter does, right? Mm -hmm. And so in HBCUs, we sit at the center of those stories. We sit at the center of learning. We sit at the center of socialization. And we come out of that space invigorated, empowered, bigger than we usually walk in. So for me, that was four years of a pouring into, and interestingly enough, by a diverse group of educators from all walks of life who became my mentors. I have to tell you, I called my, uh, my advisor, Dr. Zia Hassan. We talk every year. This was my college freshman advisor, and we still talk. I, he still advises me. That's the power of centering, right? Centering our identity and spaces. I think every community needs and deserves that. Good stuff. Thank you. Thank you. One more question, Shannon, is out there. If not, I'll keep going. No, I don't have a question, just a comment that Folks are loving the validation that training is the tool, not the end of all of the process. So, love it. Love it. because sometimes when performance is the problem, mm. training is not the answer. Mm -hmm. It could be lack of trust, lack of commitment, lack of leadership, lack of systems being in place for follow up to reinforce. Mm -hmm. I'm glad. I'm glad you put that out there. But you're doing all this heavy lifting professionally. Mm -hmm. You got two, three men at home, two teenagers in school. Mm -hmm. You're running a, a company. How are you, how are you able to fit all? How is that working for you? Homeschooling, yeah. running your company, getting out, doing your zooms, mm -hmm. taking care of everything that's involved in the relationship and the marriage. Your husband is an entrepreneur as well. Yeah. Can, can we get a peek in? Can we get this close to what's happening in your household? <laughs> well, it, uh, what's happening in my household is the same thing that's happening in every household, I think, across this country. You know, you, you, when it's game on, it's game on. But I think after you're zoomed out after five and six and seven o'clock at night, um, you're depleted, right? So I, 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 we talk about authenticity. Um, and so I think it's important not to pretend that this moment isn't difficult and weighs a lot. It does, right? As a parent, watching my kids try to navigate a virtual environment is difficult. And so we have to make sure that as parents, we pour into them. Um, it's hard. It's really hard. But what I would say to you is, that's why I keep using the word pour, the, the term pour into. I think it's critical, right? So after all of that, on a daily basis, I do have the benefit of a husband who makes it a point to pour back into me, right? He knows when I'm depleted. He knows when I'm depleted. And I, I hope I can do and, and do the same for him. But there's that give and take and that necessary pouring back into. And honestly, Sometimes you just need your girls, right? Sometimes you just need your girls. Hubby is good. Hubby is great. He does his job, but you just need to kind of pivot and pick up the phone and get on the phone with your girls and just talk about how heavy a lift and make sure you always have that girl who will lift you back up, you know, make you laugh. Uh, and that one person who will always remind you of who you are and what your purpose in and tell you to, you know, be restorative and go to bed and take a nap and wake up the next day knowing that you can do it again, knowing that you can do it again because you were meant to do it again. So I just get replenished on a daily basis by people who love on me, love me, uh, starting with husband and continuing with family and friends. 
and mentors and individuals who I've called you, right? In those moments where I'm trying to piece a few business things together and always in alignment with who I am. And you pour into me in those calls as well. So the village in this moment is critical. We share with you another time you poured into me and totally caught me off guard, totally. Because I'm used to seeing you polished, uber, <laughs> business leader, making it happen, driving. And then one day, what I did, I saw you doing some spoken word. Like, wow, she skills. Bam, everything you touch. Is that something you still do? Is it a fond memory? Yeah. Wow, yeah. you remember those days. I, I do. I, I write on a daily basis, right? Um, we talk about pouring into, so I pour into myself and, and what's most restorative are words, are words, right? So poetry for me is this conversation. Ooh. Poetry to me is when a leader invites me into an organization to speak to that organization. And so while I'll do the tactical things, I know that words are powerful, right? Words were the same, you know, the power of those words um, remind me of standing in front of that tiny little three-story building with my mother and believing we were standing in front of a high rise. I don't remember what she said, Jim, but I know she was pouring into me and with her words, she was letting me know that we were going, walking toward better, right? That's the power of words. That was poetry. And so um, I write every day. I it, it may not look like prose or sound like prose, but I think the power of the words um, is still poetic. And so I hold on to them uh, and try my best to do a poem or to leave a poem or to leave a lyric or two wherever I step in. Just a little something, something. Just a little bit, just a little and bit. Word on the street, rumor has it that within the next year, no longer than a year, you're about to give birth to a book. Mm-hmm. What's that about your book? What are you planning on covering or is it a secret or what's, what has that journey been like, that book journey? Yeah, it's been um, a labor, an impossible, a seemingly impossible or elusive labor of love. And you know, I've, I've played with this for many years. Um, years ago, the constraint, honestly, was I was thinking more about the audience than about the work. And so I think I've finally made that pivot where um, I feel untethered to other people's perceptions of what the book ought to be. So the work I do, this idea of connecting identity to workplace authentically, that's the book. That's the book. And, and now I think I'm in a stage of my life, a season in my life where I can author that comfortably, right? Mm and live with the consequence of what comes out of that. I'm ready for that. I don't know that I was before. You're, you are now, you are. If people wanna reach you, how can they reach you and your organization? Tell us and sure. I'm certain they will reach out. Sure, definitely on LinkedIn. Uh, Uva Cole said LinkedIn and on LinkedIn um, and Inclusiva. Um, so Inclusiva Global and that's, it's a mouthful, but it's easy when you break it down. That's inclusive with an A, global.com. So Inclusiva Global, that's our website. You'll find my information there. You can access me directly through the email portal. And I'd love to hear from you, talk to you, learn from you, and hopefully, you know, we can pour into each other. Thoughts about 
navigating the rest of this year moving into yeah. be another unprecedented year because we don't know where we're going yet with the pandemic. Professionally, personally, any concluding thoughts on, on where you see your, you going, the organization going, mm-hmm. your, your thought, your journey, continuing, continuing it going forward? So I think if ever there was a need for the work of inclusion, it's now. Um, I think our political uh, climate has really caused deeper divides. Um, and we can ascribe those to individuals, but at the end of the day, we have an individual responsibility to pull back into each other. So in terms of my work, I see clarity around the necessity of doing this work, um, of amplifying this work. So that I think is, is easy. The harder work will be after next week, right? Some of us are going to be jubilant. Some of us are going to be in mourning, no matter what, right? That is just, that is where we are. And so I think that um, it will be important November 4th and 5th and through the rest of the month and well beyond to remember our values, to remember what matters most to us and to figure out how to swim back to shore to each other, right? Mm. I I think that um, we've gotten really used to the noise uh, and the chaos. Um, We started this conversation around why I came here. I came here in the middle of the same kind of political dysfunction, right? On the heels, on the precipice of a dictatorship. And so, I've seen in, I've seen some of this before, and what I can say is I survived that. We'll survive this. We'll survive more. That's the human spirit. We weren't we weren't meant to. We're meant to fall on our knees, but purposefully, right? And once we've done that, we are always we were meant to stand back up. So no matter what we will stand back up. And the goal is to figure out how we can lock arms with each other when we do. That's what I'm gonna hold on to. Uva, what a gift you are. Thank you. Thank you for coming on today. Thank you for sharing your past, your wisdom, your future, your ups and downs, your level of purposefulness, very thoroughly getting the folks who are watching pumped up, excited, reinforced, re- focused and recommitted, you you came and did what you do. So we thank you for that. Jan, we did it again, another, another worthwhile and another show where I believe we brought a lot of value. Our guests bring it. And to those of you who are watching, thank you. Thank you again for checking us out. Uh, we believe in, in growing, we believe in not only putting your toe in the water, jumping in the water, not only thinking outside of the box, getting rid of the box completely. New challenges call for new tools. And it's time for us to utilize those new tools as we can sit, as we continue to take our lives higher and higher and higher. And as Uva said, to soar, not just to fly, to soar and to Till that room. You've just been Jim Packet, and we'll see you again next week on the Dr. James Show. Yeah. Yeah. 
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.